Uh, welcome to my weird little podcast, the podcast where we talk about weird stuff. Today we have Roxana. Woo! Ooh. Tia. Me. Ooh. Um, and Patrick sitting on the bed next to me drinking coffee and um, not contributing. <laughs> savage attitude. So, I think I should go first. Today is the day of imposters. Missing people and imposters, I think, is uh, the theme for today. Right? Yes. Mine has both those things. Missing people and imposters. Mine has both those things, too. There we Uh, go. So, it's very weird how these two cases parallel each other. But uh, let's get into it. So we, so if you are fans of my other podcast, Hollywood's Haunted the Podcast, we covered the story I'm about to do a little bit on that episode, but not very much. I'm going to go over it in a little more detail today. And mine is the true story of The Changeling, which was a movie that starred Angelina Jolie. I'm going to Google it right now so I can tell you a little bit about it. Change. Lang. 2008. Starring Angelina Jolie. She plays a telephone operator. Her son goes missing. Blah, blah, blah. John Malkovich is in it. Jeffrey Donovan. And so on. (laughs) So. You can IMDB it. Amy Ryan is in it. It's a good movie. It's fucking terrifying. And I I knew what the movie was about, so I avoided watching it for a really long time because I knew it was going to give me anxiety. And knowing about this case, like, the amount of gaslighting is, like, gaslighting in general is terrifying, especially as a woman, because as a woman, you usually have experienced some sort of manipulation or gaslighting in your life, especially yeah. from... Especially from men. Not going to say everyone's experienced, but everyone's experienced. Every woman has experienced (laughs) it at some point, I'm sure. Um, You know, and it's very terrifying because you start to question your own reality. Uh And you're like, am I crazy? Am I crazy? Because I feel like I'm not crazy, but everyone else is saying I'm crazy. I'm taking crazy pills. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a big factor in this case. So the movie, the changeling was based off of two particular stories that had a lot to do with each other. And, but two incidences, one of which is the Wineville murders. So I, I'm going to just get into it, but it's pretty, pretty fucking terrible. I'm going to, I'm going to preface this where there is talk of rape, there's talk of murder, there's talk of harm to children, and some gaslighting and bad, bad, bad stuff. So if you are triggered by that, this is not the episode for you. Go listen to our episode on Skinwalker Ranch or, you know... Any of our other episodes. 
yeah, there's no torture or rape in that one. Oh, except for, I mean, those cows, but you know, <laughs> I, there was, there was nothing indicated that they had been violated sexually against their will. That's true. Except for their buttholes being removed, but. Um, well, we don't know what if maybe for science, you know. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, alien oh, science. God. Oh God! All right, <laughs> so I'm a glass of wine and two tequila shots in, but let's just go for this, okay? Okay, damn! Well, I let me drink some water. Not here. close to that at all. <laughs> okay, so the Wineville Wineville murders. So, the Wineville murderer, his name is Gordon Stewart Northcott, and he was born in Bladworth, Saskatchewan, Canada, and raised in British Columbia. So, he's from Canada. His whole family's from Canada, and that kind of plays into the story. So, he moved... Suspicious. Yeah. Not all Canadians are nice, apparently. What? I know. apparently. I know. Um... So he moved to Los Angeles, California, which is why I talked about this on Hollywood's Haunted. It's most of this happens in the LA area, and it was had a very, very famous movie based off of it. Uh, do you remember when we uh, did the tours? Both Roxana and I were both tour guides at Universal Studios. Roxana may or may not still be a tour guide there. Um, and we did the tours through the props department and we would rock, walk by the, the, um, what is it called? The switchboard. Switchboards. Yeah. So that is yeah. from this movie that was used in the this movie. Yeah. Was not created for the movie, but it was used in this movie because she is a switchboard operator. It's also used in the marvelous Miss Maisel and other movies that I don't remember because I don't work there anymore. Um, <laughs> um, so Gordon Stewart Northcott was born in Bladworth, Saskatchewan, Canada, and raised in British Columbia, and he moved to Los Angeles with his parents in 1924. Two years later, at the age of 19, Northcott asked his father to purchase a plot of land in the community of Wineville, located in the Riverside County where he built a chicken ranch and a house with the help of both his father and his nephew, uh, 11-year-old Sanford Clark. Uh, It was the pretext that Northcott used to bring Clark from Bladsworth to the U.S. Uh, Upon the boy's arrival at Winefield Ranch, Northcott began to physically and sexually abuse Clark. So he had his nephew come and live on the ranch, it was only supposed to be temporary, and during this time, he would basically abuse him in many ways. Oh. And uh, his neighbors started to grow suspicious of what was going on because they saw him beating uh, Clark. So concerns started to arise in the community. We'll just say that. And in August of 1928, out of concern for his welfare, uh, his sister, Jessie, decided to visit. She was wondering why he hadn't come back home yet. His letters home seemed off. There was something, like, very suspicious. 
you know when someone's character just isn't right or they say they say stuff and you're like something yeah. feels off something's not going yeah. on so that's what was happening yeah. so Jesse 19 years old decides to go visit her nephew who is living in Los Angeles with her 21 year old uncle and so she visits him at the Wineville Ranch uh, at the time, Clark, Clark told her, so S- Sanford Clark, which I'll refer to as Clark or Sanford throughout this, uh, the 11-year-old, right? 11-year-old, yes. Uh, probably about 13 at this time, uh, because it's two years later. He told her that he feared for his life. And one night, while well, Northcott was asleep, uh, he had told uh, Jesse that Northcott had murdered four boys at his ranch. Uh, and once she returned to Canada a week later, Jesse informed the American consul there was uh, there of Northcott's crimes. She also told the consul that uh, Sanford Clark was there, like not on his visa had run out, and he was mm-hmm. basically. Uh, an illegal immigrant, and she told them that so that he would get deported back to Canada off of the property of Mm -hmm. this ranch, you know, which in the long run would be better, you know, for him. Um, So the consul then wrote a letter to the Los Angeles Police Department detailing Jesse's sworn complaint. Because there was initially some concern over an immigration issue, the LAPD contacted the United States Immigration Service to determine facts relative to the complaint. And on August 31st, 1928, two immigrant service inspectors, Judson F. Shaw and George W. Scallion, visited the ranch and took uh, Sanford Clark into custody. Northcott had seen the agents driving up the long road to his ranch and before fleeing into the tree line, which edged the property, told Clark to stall them or threatened to shoot him from the tree line with a rifle. So basically, he ran off and he had threatened uh, Sanford Clark, who was probably pretty terrified at this time, yeah, that he was going to kill him from the tree line. Uh, so during the next two hours where Clark, well, Clark stalled, Northcott kept running. Finally, when Clark felt that the agents could protect him, he then told them that Gordon Northcott had fled, that Gordon Northcott and Gordon Northcott's mother, Sarah Louise, uh, oh, sorry, they fled to Canada but were arrested near Vernon, British Columbia. So the mother was actually living there at the ranch, too, at the time, and she kind of knew about all of this and was extremely culpable and may or may not have been involved uh, or at least enabling. So on September 19th of 1928, Clark testified at Sarah Louise's sentencing that Northcott had kidnapped, molested, and beaten and killed three young boys with the help of his mother and Sanford Clark himself. So basis so Sanford Clark 
he had been used um, to bait these young boys. So um, Gordon Northcott and Sanford Clark were driving to town. And Gordon Northcott would lure these boys to the truck uh, and basically be like, it's okay. We're, we're going to go for a drive. It's okay. I've got my nephew here. And because the young nephew was there, these kids felt safe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was just so incredibly unfair, you yeah. know? So Clark, um, Clark also testified about the murder of the fourth young man. Uh, so there, a Mexican citizen after which Northcart had forced Clark to help dispose of the victim's head by burning it into a fire and then crushing the skull. Oh God. Northcott stated that he left the headless body by the side of the road near Puente because he had no other place to put it. He stated that quicklime was used to dispose of the remains and that the bodies were buried at the ranch. So authority authorities had found three shallow graves because Northcott or sorry, uh, Sanford Clark had actually brought authorities there and said, these are where you're going to find bodies. So they found three shallow graves at the exact spots where Clark had stated they were. It was found, however, that these graves did not contain complete bodies, but only parts of the bodies. During the testimony from both Clark and his sister, Jesse, it was learned that the bodies had been dug up by Northcott and his mother the evening of August 4th, 1928, a few weeks before Clark had been taken into protective custody. And they had taken the bodies out to a deserted area where they were most likely burned in the night. The complete bodies were never recovered. So the evidence found in the graves consisted of 51 parts of human anatomy. Uh, of human bones, blood, uh, so, okay, sorry, this is, a, this is a quote here. 51 parts of human anatomy, those silent bits of evidence of human bones and blood have spoken and corroborated the testimony of the living witnesses. Uh, this evidence enabled the authorities to conclude that two brothers named Lewis and Nelson Winslow, aged 12 and 10 respectively, and the un- unidentified victim, uh, of the the Mexican young boy had been murdered and a boy named Walter Collins, a boy who had gone missing. According to Sanford, uh, Sanford Clark's testimony, when Sarah Louise found out that it was Walter Collins because he was, he was missing and was in the newspapers and she found out that he was at the ranch. She was the one that convinced Gordon Northcott to kill him. Because she's like, we have this missing boy here who you're abusing and you need to kill him. Mm-hmm. Which they had killed two other boys prior to this. Um, yeah. So they killed him with an axe and dissolved his body with quicklime. God. So a little bit about who Walter Collins was and the very disturbing and unsettling case of his disappearance. And the unfortunate things that happened to his mother. So Christine Collins, who is his mother, 
was born in 1888 uh, as Christina Ida Dunn. She married Walter J. Collins, an ex-convict using an alias, uh, who was born Walter Joseph Anson, who hid from his who hid his past from her. They had a son, Walter, in September of 1918. So on March 10th, 1928, nine-year-old Walter Collins put on his lumber uh, lumber jacket, brown corduroy pants, black Oxford, and a gray cap. Christine Collins gave him money to go for a movie in the Mount Washington area of Los Angeles. Walter did not return home. Christine Collins was working as a a telephone operator and reported her son missing on March 15th, five days later. So, months earlier, a girl named Marion Parker went missing in the area. So, her son going missing was, like, very, um, very, how do I say it? Like, was headline news, basically, because this was the second missing person in the area. This little girl had gone missing before, so they thought it was someone abducting children, which it was, but most likely Marion Parker went missing for some other reason and was not abducted by Northcott, or so they said. Mm. So... So Walter's disappearance received nationwide attention and the Los Angeles Police Department followed up hundreds of leads without success. The Walter sightings came in from as far as San Francisco and Oakland. A claim said that they saw the boy at a Glendale gas station. The boy was wrapped in newspaper, only his head visible. Which sounds likely. Um, (laughs) you know, with what had happened. Sorry. I laugh when I'm nervous and I don't laugh because this is not, this is not funny. I laugh because it's terrible. I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I, 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 uncomfortable laugh. (laughs) So the police faced negative publicity and increasing public pressure to solve the case until five months after Walter's disappearance, a boy claiming to be Walter was found in DeKalb, Illinois. So, Walter gets found, or at least a boy claiming that he is Walter. Letters and photographs were exchanged before Christine Collins herself paid $70. In 1928, she paid $70 for the boy to be brought to Los Angeles. At the reunion, Collins said that the boy was not Walter. Under pressure to resolve Uh, The case, the officer in charge, Captain J.J. Jones, convinced her to try the boy out. (laughs) Okay. By taking him him home. She returned three weeks later saying that he was not her son. You know, although she had dental records and backings from friends to prove her case, Collins said Jones accused her of being a bad mother and bringing ridicule ridicule to the police. So this is a quote from, uh, from, uh, Colleen Collins, Christine Collins. Sorry. I know who I'm talking about. Um, she says, you see, Walter was quiet and well-behaved and called me mother. 
This child called me Ma, and at times is hard to handle. I certainly hope that he is my son, but somehow I can't bring myself to believe it. So this little shit is <laughs> basically like, Ma, get me this, get me that, you know. He's, uh was just so, such a parallel to what you're going to talk about a little bit right. later. Yeah. And it makes me so angry. This little shit, you know, you can't just. And the the kid probably had no idea what damage he was causing, you know. So, J.J. Jones had Collins committed to a psychiatric ward at Los Angeles County Hospital under a Code 12 internment, a term used to jail or commit someone who was deemed difficult or an inconvenience. So J.J. Jones questioned the boy who admitted to being 12-year-old Arthur Hutchins, Jr., a runaway from Iowa. Hutchins was picked up by the police in Illinois, and when he was asked if he was Walter Collins, he first said no, but then he said yes. His motive for motive for posing for as Collins was to get to Hollywood so he could meet his favorite actor, Tom Mix. What a little shit, you know? Yes. And I can say that because he's probably old and dead now. So what a little he's, shit. He's probably super dead right now. Um, yeah. So Collins was released 10 days later after Hutchins admit that he was not her son and filed a lawsuit against the Los Angeles Police Department. Collins won, won the lawsuit uh, against Jones and was awarded $10,800, which Jones never paid. Oh, So in 1929, Gordon Stewart Northcott was found guilty of abducting, molesting, and killing three young boys in what became known as the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. Northcott's mother, Sarah Louise Northcott, confessed in late 1928 to her participation in the murders of Walter Collins as being amongst her son's victims. Following her confession, she was sentenced without trial to life imprisonment for her role in Walter's death. The state chose not to prosecute Gordon Northcott for Walter's murder, but instead brought him to trial for the murders of the three other young boys, for which there was also forensic evidence. And on February 13, 1929, he was found guilty for all three murders and sentenced to death. Despite these convictions, Gordon Northcott denied killing Walter Collins. And Sarah Northcott later attempted to re resign, rescind, rescind later. I'm sorry. I don't know words. Um, <laughs> I am illiterate, although I am reading this. Um, so uh, later attempted to rescind her confession and uh, gave other scattered and inconsistent statements. Collins, who chose to believe her son was still alive in spite of the guilty plea entered by Sarah Northcott to a judge and corroborating testimony by Sanford Clark in the murder of Walton Collins, corresponded with Gordon Northcott and received permission to interview him shortly before his execution. Northcott pledged to explain the true account of her son's fate but he recanted at the last minute and professed his innocence of any involvement. So basically 
she went to go and interview him and see him and he wouldn't even Mm -hmm. see her. He Mm. refused to see her. He let her on and then at the last minute did not Uh, see her. This poor woman, this poor woman. (sighs) Collins was further encouraged by the appearance of another boy that Northcott had abducted and probably molested. The police initially thought the boy may have been mur- the, been a murder victim of Northcott's. Collins continued to search for her son for the rest of her life. Aww. Collins attempted several times to collect money owed to her by Jones, including in nineteen forty in a nineteen forty one court case in which she attempted to collect fifteen thousand a fifteen thousand dollar judgment in Superior Court. She died in nineteen sixty four and was buried in Los Angeles. Canadian police arrested Northcott and his mother on September 19th, 1928. Due to errors in the extradition paperwork, they were not returned to Los Angeles until November 30th, 1928. While Sarah and her son were being held in British Columbia waiting extradition to California, she confessed to the murders, including the murder of nine-year-old Walter Collins. But before the extradited, before being extradited to California, she retracted her confession, as did Northcott, who had confessed to killing more than five boys. After Sarah and her son had been extradited from Columbia to California, she once again confessed and pleaded guilty to killing Walter Collins. She was not put on trial upon her plea of guilty. Superior Court Judge Morton sentenced her to life imprisonment on December 31st, 1928, sparing her the death penalty because she was a woman. During her sentencing hearing, she claimed that her son was innocent and made a variety of claims to his parentage, including that he was the illegitimate son of an English nobleman and that she was Gordon's grandmother and that he was the result of incest between her husband, Cyrus George Norcott, and their daughter. She also stated that as a child, Gordon was sexually abused by the entire family. She served her sentence at the Tichapi State Prison and was paroled uh, after less than 12 years. She died in 1944. Gordon Northcott was implicated in the murders of Walter Collins, but because of his mother, because his mother had already confessed and been sentenced for it, the state chose not to prosecute Gordon for that murder. It was speculated that George, that Gordon may have killed as many as 20 boys, but the state of California could not produce evidence to support the spe- speculations. Ultimately, the state only brought an indictment against Gordon uh, Northcott for the murders of an unidentified underage Mexican national known as the Headless Mexican which is so sad, and the brothers, Lewis and Nelson Winslow. The brothers had been reported missing from Pomona on May 16, 1928. In early 1929, Gordon Northcott's trial was held before Judge George R. Freeman in the Riverside Riverside County, California. The jury heard that he kidnapped, molested, tortured, and murdered the Winslow brother, brothers and the uh, unidentified Mexican child in 1928. 
On February 8, 1929, the 27-day trial ended with Gordon being convicted of those murders. And on February 13, 1929, Freeman sentenced him to death. And he was hanged on October 2, 1930 at the San Quentin State Prison at 23 years old. What a piece of shit. Right. <laughs> oh. Sorry. So mad. So mad. You can edit that part last part out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that. Um, I also want to do a podcast on the San Quentin prison because that is where a lot of people end up. That is where yep. Charles Manson was. That is where Richard Ramirez was. Uh, also, at my job, I get a lot of people coming in and going, hey, I work at San Quentin. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure a lot of people work there. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. work there. I'm sure it's a huge prison. Or I was working at the time. I had one guy come through and was like, hey, I was at San Quentin when Charles Manson was there. And I was like, oh, did you work there? And he was like, nope. Nope. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Well, congratulations uh, on your freedom. Yep. And he was like, thank you. <laughs> so um, the chicken coop murders are also referenced in American Horror Story Hotel. Do you oh, remember that? No, I don't. I did watch that, but no, I don't remember that. Okay. But... The, the maid that, that's always cleaning out like the bloody sheets the old-timey maid from the 1920s. Mm. There's that story about her son where she takes him out trick-or-treating and he's, like, dressed up as a ghost and she's talking to, like, one of the other moms and she loses sight of him. And then they last thing she sees is him in the car being driven away and then they find his body, uh, or I guess the remains, when they, they catch that guy. So in in the American um, Horror Story, yeah. So, ugh. yeah, it was it was horrible hearing about it then, and it's horrible hearing about what really happened. Um, the movie The Changeling does like a really good depiction of yeah. this. It is very disturbing. I would suggest only watching it when you're in the right mindset. Ah, <laughs> uh, but like. Their depiction of Sanford Clark and his trauma, it's it's just very sad. Okay, so now I'll be talking about my story, which has some similarities, yet also differences as well. forgot how much this drink. Of, hello? Sorry, my drink tastes Wait. really nasty. Oh. <laughs> I forgot how much this stuff is gross. But oh, I won't mention it by right. name because I want them to sponsor us in the future. <laughs> okay, sorry. The screen was just going in and out. Mm -hmm. um, so this is about the disappearance and strange reappearance of Nicholas Barkley. So this happened... In 1994, so us millennials, that's like nine years ago, right? Uh -huh. uh, uh, and it took place in San, uh, actually Austin, Texas. So this is back Austin, Texas,  1994. On June 10th, Nicholas 
Griffiths went missing, and he was 13 at the time. So here is the story. On the day of June 10th, he went down to the basketball courts uh, to play with his friends, and around sunset, one by one, all of his friends started to go home, and he was kind of the last one there. And it was dark, and he didn't want to have to walk home, so he called his older brother uh, from a payphone and was just wanting to know if he could get a ride. And his brother, you know, was kind of a bit irritated at the time. Like, why did you call this late? And their mother, um, you know, single mom, worked the graveyard shifts at Dunkin' Donuts. And she pretty much worked all week, seven days a week. So at this point in time, she's still asleep because I've worked graveyard shift. You usually sleep until about nine, ten o'clock at night. You go up and then you work all night. Then you come home and you go to bed and you kind of need that sleep. It'd be like somebody waking you up maybe at three o'clock in the morning asking for a ride home. So the older brother didn't want to wake up the mom and said that he told Nicholas to just walk on home. It was about a, a mile and a half, and I mean, that's not too bad, but, you know, at night with a kid, that, you know, that can be a bit of a walk. But Nicholas wasn't just any kid. See, you talked about uh, Walter having been a really sweet and wonderful kid at first, well, Nicholas was the opposite. He started off as being a little shit. So when Nicholas didn't come home that night, nobody really thought it was a big deal because Nicholas had a, a habit of running away for a couple of days, usually mm -hmm. after he had gotten in a fight with his mom. And he was a, a handful. He would just go out and do whatever he wanted. He had three tattoos at the age of 13, you know, like how many 13 year olds have three tattoos. Yeah. Um, and he had also had some trouble with the law as well. Uh, some violent, he was, he was said to be violent. He would get into fights. And on the 14th of June, not too far away, he was actually supposed to go to court uh, because he had stolen some shoes and the judge was supposed to rule on whether or not he was going to go into a group home uh, with other troubled kids as well. So when he didn't come home the night of the 10th, it wasn't a big deal to the family. Mm -hmm. Then when he didn't come home after a couple of days, that's when the mom was a little bit worried because she'd usually say that, you know, 48 hours would go by and then bam, Nicholas comes home, tail between his legs, you know, he's hungry, he needs money, whatever. But this didn't happen. He never came home. And the other weird thing was he didn't take anything with him for an extended runaway trip. Like there was no clothes, no money, nothing um, that he took with him. And when the mom went to the police to file the missing persons report, the police also didn't take it very seriously because they knew him. They knew what kind of kid he was. They knew he had pulled this stunt before and pretty much figured that maybe this time he just decided to run off for good. So nothing ha happens. Nothing happens. Uh, his family life wasn't 
that great. It wasn't like he was the black sheep of a really well-together family. Like his mom would do heroin, his older brother would do cocaine, his older brother also had, you know, anger and temper issues. So I guess his brother had gotten back into the cocaine uh, after the disappearance of Nicholas. And people were thinking maybe he felt guilty because he was the one that said walk home instead of having his mom pick him up Mm -hmm. or picking him up himself because Nicholas's brother was 24 at the time. It wasn't like he couldn't have taken the car to go pick Nick up at the basketball courts. So he's getting heavy into cocaine. And his brother makes a call to the police saying that he suspects Nicholas has tried to break into their garage. So the police come out and they take a look, but they don't find any evidence that anyone has, A, broken into the garage or has even tried to break into the garage. So that's a little bit suspicious. But, you know, it's L.A., We've known people that have been on cocaine. They get very paranoid. So Mm -hmm. it's understandable that maybe the brother was doing the cocaine and thought he might have heard somebody breaking in. Maybe somebody did try and he assumed it was Nicholas or something like that. So it's a, it's, you know, the police don't really think too much of it. You know, it's his Mm -hmm. fucking coke addict. Uh, this delinquent kid who cares who cares about what's going on and then nothing is really done about Nicholas no one's heard about him and that one of the weird things too is that no one spotted him even if he had run away he was wearing purple pants and a pink backpack at the time you would think that that would stand out if you saw the kid, like, oh, yeah, the, the combination of purple and pink, it's very colorful. But mm-hmm. nobody in the surrounding areas had spotted a kid wearing that clothes. And he hadn't really taken any clothes from home. So if he had run away straight from the basketball courts, he would probably still be wearing the same clothes that he had initially run away in. So mm-hmm. that was another thing that's a little bit suspicious that we'll come back to uh, at the end. So years go by, about three years uh, pass by when there is a call to the San Antonio police from the police in Spain. And this police officer uh, is saying that we've got this young boy. Uh, he, we found him wandering the streets of Linares, Andalusia. He seems very confused and traumatized, kind of, and it's not really known who he was, but we finally got a name out of him, and he says he's Nicholas Barclay from Texas. Um, and uh, there was, the police were saying that Nicholas claimed that he had been kidnapped and then sold into this sex trafficking ring in Europe. And that's Mm. where he's been for the last three years. And Nicholas's story is also kind of conspiracy theory story because it's not just, we know that there are sex trafficking rings, correct? We know kids and women, uh, people get kidnapped all the time. What's weird about the story is that he says it was the U.S. military 
that mm-hmm. kidnapped him and then sold him to the European military uh, for sex. And that he escaped when one of the guards had left a door open and that once he was able to get out of the building, he found himself in, in the streets of Spain. He had no idea mm. where he was. Uh, he acted very traumatized at the time. Um, his sister it went ahead and flew out to Spain to go ahead and retrieve him. And when she first got there to try to meet him, he actually locked himself in the bathroom and refused to come out for a while. Now, if you're thinking, okay, he's, he's gone through this traumatizing time. He's being mm-hmm. held prisoner and, you know, all these horrible things are happening to him. That's, I guess that's not a weird thing for someone to do. So when, he finally came out. Um, his sister truly said that she believed it was Nicholas. Mm. And she got him all the documents that he needed to travel legally from Spain to Texas. Because if he had been kidnapped, you know, he doesn't have a passport. He doesn't have any papers. So anyways, yeah. they get him a brand new U.S. passport. Uh, Nicholas claimed that he was uh, beaten, uh, sexually abused. So that's also kind of parallel to your story. And he was punished if he ever tried to speak English. And that is why he now spoke with a French accent and with very European style of speaking. Because he had been forced to to speak French, uh, allegedly, for the past three years. Uh, Then he claimed that his captors were doing strange... Sorry. He claimed that his captors were doing strange medical experiments on him. And that is why his eyes, that used to be blue, were now a dark brown color. Because they were dropping chemicals into them that drastically changed his eye color. And then same mm-hmm. thing with his hair, that when he was in Texas, it was blonde. But due to the many medical experiments and chemicals, it was now a dark brown. And mm. it's right. It, you know, okay. Ding, ding, ding. Red, red flags are starting to go on. French accent. Yeah. A uh, completely different hair color, hairstyle, yeah. and, and personality also changed. So remember, Nicholas Barkley was a little shit. Um, this new Nicholas did have signs of having been traumatized, like he would, you know, do self harm. But he also seemed to be really mature uh, as well. Um, when they got him, you know, back home, he started to go to school, but he was actually doing well in school. He was studying. He was going to church. Uh, He had a girlfriend. Uh, He wasn't doing all the hood rat stuff that he had been doing when before he had gotten kidnapped and everything. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the family was really playing this off that it was because of him having gone through the trauma that he went to that it, it made him mature and 
act different. Mm. Um, and again, the, the mother and, and the sister and the brother, they were not saying that they suspected anything. They were telling everybody they full on believed that Nick, this was Nicholas Barkley. Mm-hmm. Um, a month after Nicholas was reunited with his family, Hard Copy wanted to do an interview because yeah, this is a this is a juicy story. Kid goes missing three years, shows up in Spain, part of this you know military sex ring, that kind of stuff. Um, so they hired a private investigator to track down Nicholas. And um, the private investigator did. And then, you know, you had the hard copy approached Nicholas and asked them. And he actually agreed. He wanted to do this interview. He wanted to be able to tell his story. And the PI was starting to get a little bit suspicious as well. Because during the interview... Nicholas just seemed super calm and still, and no real body language at all. Uh, and compared to what the PI had dug up about what Nicholas like was like before, he, the PI, did not think that this was a likely change in personality. Something was off. Mm-hmm. And so the PI started to do a little bit closer work on trying to compare um, photos of Nicholas now and Nicholas beforehand. So first of all, you keep Nicholas now is telling the story, oh, my hair is different, my eyes are different because of the experiments. And so the PI was really focusing on the size and the shape of the ears because that's kind of very unique to human beings that you can't really fake that. So mm. uh, the PI noticed that the, uh, the ears did seem a bit off, not so much that he could prove it, but just enough that it is now starting to validate his feelings that this might not be the real Nicholas. Another person that also had doubts that this was the real Nicholas was the psychiatrist that was treating Nicholas for the trauma that they had gone through because sure Nicholas has this story of oh my French accent is because I was speaking French for three years but for 13 years before that he was speaking English with a Texas a Texas accent Mm -hmm. and most of the time once a person is kind of brought back into their environment. It's not Mm. unheard of or unusual for them to kind of go back into what they were speaking before, like 13 years compared to three years. That's a lot. Nicholas should have shown some signs of reverting back to his old accent, but that was not happening. And the, the way he spoke was very European, not like somebody that had, been born in America and that had learned uh, French, it was as if it was a person that was born in France. And then Nicholas's uncle was also super suspicious, but the mother was having none of it. She didn't want to talk about it. She didn't, she was very much wanting to push this out of anybody's mind that this was not Nicholas. So the opposite of your story where the mother is trying to say, Hey, this is not my son and no one's believing her. uh, People are saying, 
no, this isn't your son. And she's like, no, 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 it's, it's our son. Nope. This is, this is super our son. Yeah. Um, the, the PI started following Nicholas kind of going off of previous reports of how Nicholas was and then wanted to see, well, what is Nicholas like now? And again, Nicholas did not seem to exhibit the same behaviors. They were pretty much going around listening to music, doing Michael Jackson dances and not getting into any trouble at all. Just completely opposite of what Nicholas had been doing, which was breaking into things, getting fights, getting tattoos, uh, creating Mm -hmm. chaos. So the PI went ahead and contacted the FBI because for all the PI knew that this might be some secret agent or terrorist or a threat to the United States. Mm -hmm. A U.S. past kind of a and steal this u.s identity and is now living as another person and god only knows who they really are Mm. well interesting enough the psychiatrist had also contacted the fbi a month before the pi did because of their concerns that they did not think that this was the real nicholas barkley and that it was an imposter so Then Nicholas begins to have some sort of nervous breakdown. Now he's going into the self-mutilation, self-harm. He steals a car. He kind of just completely crashes and burns. And he he gets arrested. And they want to know, okay, now who are you? Who are you really? And the FBI orders a DNA test. And the mother is still saying, no, 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 this is Nicholas. This is Nicholas. And the FBI is like, nope, we want a DNA test to confirm that he really is your son. Mm-hmm. And then when they confronted him, he pretty much was like, okay, yeah, the jig is up. I, I am not I am not Nicholas Barkley. Um, my name is actually Frederick Bourdin and... I am wanted by the Interpol and I am 24 years old. (laughs) So how the heck did this guy make his way to the United States? Like who the heck is his Frederick? Is he a spy? Is he a terrorist? No, it's actually a really sad freaking story. Um, Frederick Bourdain got the nickname, the chameleon back in Europe. So he had pretty much, been abandoned by his family and at a young age realized that he could kind of get the love and the attention that he wanted by pretending to be a lost child so they would just wander the streets kind of crying and whimpering and looking like they didn't know what they were and then somebody would come along and be like what's going on and like oh i'm I'm this lost child. Please take me in and take care of me. And they would. People would, you know, take them in and and feed him and and care for him and kind of give him the love and the attention. And then when that was up, he'd he'd move on to a different place and do the whole thing again. And then he started to research uh, orphans that had gone missing and would take over their identity. So they were going all over Europe pretending to be these lost orphans because then he would get taken in to these children's homes 
and then they would take care of him and until you know it was revealed okay mm-hmm. you're not really this orphan or you're not really this person and then he'd pick up and move to an, another country and he was doing this well past you know the age of you know 13 14 15 16 and he would make sure he was like really well shaved he would dress in children's clothing and he kind of had a very thin frame and so for a while he was kind of getting away with pretending to be maybe you know 16 17 year old orphans that had just really gone through puberty Mm. but after a while everybody was starting to catch up you know interpol was going after him because he was lying to the authorities uh all these various children's homes and orphanages were passing information about him so that they weren't going to get swindled like hey keep an eye out for this guy uh he's pretending to be these lost orphans so his last hurrah was in spain he's he's trying to try it out again but they're closing in on him so he knows that everybody else knows that he can't pretend to be this lost orphan so he gets picked up by the authorities they're asking about his identity he's not giving out out his identity so they're like if you won't tell us who you are we're just going to go ahead and fingerprint you and he doesn't want to get fingerprinted because then they'll realize that Interpol is after him. So he comes up with this idea that, okay, what if I impersonate an American? If I'm an American, you know, the Spanish government is not going to want to fuck with an American citizen. They don't want the embassy up their ass. So they will probably just go ahead and be more than happy to get him back to America. So he, in the, night he's able to get access to a phone and he calls the united states let's see hold on i have it written down he calls the national center for missing and exploited children in virginia and he pretends to be the director of this children's shelter in spain and he gives a description of what is generally himself and he's asking the person on the other end if there is anybody in their database that might match that description the closest thing that came up was nicholas he would be 16 at the time Mm -hmm. um and so he gets a copy of the missing person's poster so he can try to get a better idea of who nicholas barkley is and how he can kind of start fleshing out his story to the to the judge and the authorities then he's the one that calls the san antonio police and he pretended to be a cop um, from that town in Spain saying that Nicholas Barkley had been found, that he was super confused, didn't know who he was. So that whole time that they thought it was the cop calling them, it was actually this fucking guy calling uh, the San Antonio police My and basically God. saying that oh, I found, we found me, found Nicholas Barkley. Oh my God. Uh, now, when he was looking closer at the poster and realizing that his eye color and his hair color didn't match. And then he found the description of the two tattoos. He really had to scramble. Like, how is he going to fake this? So with his hair, he tries using just regular cleaning bleach to try to 
to bleach his hair, which is not really going to work that well. Um, realizes there's nothing he can do about his eyes. So he comes up with that BN story about the whole medical experiment thing. And then he does get somebody to tattoo the T that was between Nicholas's right index finger and thumb. And it was just like one of those crappy tattoos that your friend does with like mm-hmm. ink. And so it wasn't really hard to face. So um, that's why, you know, he could have fooled some of the, the, the family members of, oh, it really is him. Um, then they, the FBI did get the DNA test. It came back that he was not at all, uh, Nicholas Barkley. Um, Mm -hmm. and so between that and his own confession, he was charged with perjury and illegally obtaining a U.S. passport. Now, usually this would get you about three years in prison, but the judge felt that he had taken advantage of this grieving family and did such a, a heinous crime and extended uh, it to six years in prison. But here's the thing. Let's go back to this family because they were so intent that this was Nicholas Barkley. The mom did not want the DNA test. Um, none of that. And, uh, Frederick was also saying that he kind of caught on that the family knew that he wasn't Nicholas. But like when his sister came to get him in Spain, he was pretending to have amnesia and not know a lot so that she would have to feed him all this information so that he could, you know, be able to fool the authorities. But he was saying it almost felt like the sister totally knew this wasn't Nicholas and was helping him with all this information so that he could yeah. be Nicholas. And that even, you know, with the mom, there was this whole thing of where if he did something or behaved in a way that other family members or anybody would question it, she was very adamant to come to the rescue and come up with an excuse or, you know, support his own story on why he was acting different and then the brother so the one that called the cops saying oh nicholas tried to break into the the garage and want the cocaine problem was super shut off from frederick like didn't really want to talk to him didn't really want to say wasn't too happy to see him and Mm -hmm. really the only thing he said to frederick upon uh first seeing him when he got back was good luck and almost as if he very much knew that this was not Nicholas. And so there's the theory that something did happen to Nicholas and the family, at least the mother, the sister, and the brother knew it and were more than happy to allow this imposter into their family because it would help cover up the story of what actually happened to Nicholas. Uh, That, of course, everything now is speculation. Don't know if maybe he did come home and there was a fight and something happened to Nicholas. Maybe the brother knows what actually happened Mm. to Nicholas. Maybe the brother did something. Um, So that's why it was really so easy for Frederick to 
come to the United States as Nicholas Barkley because it wasn't that he was so good he fooled this family. It was really because this family seemed to really need him to be Nicholas. And they're also saying that the report that the brother did was also very suspicious because usually when somebody has been murdered or killed and they're trying to pass it off that they're still alive, that the murderers or the accomplices will call in a fake report that they saw all the person that was murdered um, just so that it's on record that they were alive when in reality they're actually dead. So they're saying that's why it's piecing together that maybe we'll never know what happens to Nicholas, but that that's kind of the, the really dark backstory uh, to this already messed up story as well. So mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, the parallels, it's almost opposites of your stories about this mother who her child was taken from her and most obviously murdered. And all she ever wanted was to have him back and just, got punished and and then you have this other family which probably did something to the kid yeah yeah we're more than happy to have somebody take the fall for what happened so yep that's the story of nicholas barkley yeah that's such a crazy situation you know i don't know (laughs) that's Oh, God. You know, how how horrible. Like, I understand the mom. Maybe she's, like, in trauma. Like, to give her the benefit of the doubt. Like, it's trauma and that she, of course, wants her son back. But, like, yeah, just to be this person to take advantage of a situation like that well, is pretty also, horrible. Like, her son didn't get along like they would actually always get into fights and everything like he was not that the other kids weren't the problem child but i don't i don't think she was as innocent as as that i think something very much happened yeah and it was almost as if this problem of nicholas got solved then it became of how do we protect the rest of the family and you know? cover our tracks right exactly yeah well that was highly disturbing right <laughs> yep bad, bad stories yeah they're both yeah pretty horrible um so i'm officially creeped out and terrified yeah. by Ed, it's good Let's go night-night. Let's go to bed now. So, yeah, I guess we'll wrap this one up. So, thank you for listening to my weird little podcast. That's the one we're recording now. absolutely. (laughs) Oh, we forgot to do the... All right, have a good night, everyone. Please follow us on Twitter, on instagram on the facebook uh i make tiktoks occasionally so follow me on that if that's something you do follow me on that uh email us at my weird little podcast at gmail.com is that a is that a thing it's a thing and um 
Or if you have suggestions for our other podcast, Hollywood's Haunted, which is Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast at gmail.com. Hollywood's Haunted at gmail.com. Hollywood's Haunted at gmail.com. And uh, like, like, subscribe, share, listen. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all the things. Uh, stay spooky. Ooh. Ooh, spooky.